0: So what's up guys? How are y'all doing? Let's just get into this. Um, How many of y'all men have ever took something apart? How many of you ever took something apart unsuccessfully? You weren't able to put it back together again. How many of you men did this because your wife told you to do it? That's not a lie, man. I'm telling you. How many of y'all took something apart to find out that it was put together like, hey, man, gum's not supposed to be holding this thing together. The, the parts wasn't there. Everything was not there required for this to work properly. Anybody did that? All right, so I live in Meigs County, okay? Um, people might know it as Meth County, all right? And I used to do a whole lot of drugs back in the day. I mean, everybody's very aware of my story, my testimony. Back in my early 20s, me and a buddy of mine named Chad did a lot of meth together, all right? So we were up for days and days and days, and I had an Xbox. And the Xbox was skipping slightly, but me and him decided that we were prepared to take this machine apart to make it work better, all right? How many things that went good? We have been up for four days and we decided, hey, I'm not a Microsoft engineer, but I know how to take this Xbox apart and I'm going to reassemble it just like, not just like it's supposed to be, even better than it was supposed to be. Needless to say, we didn't take pictures, we didn't take notes, we didn't do anything except we had a calculated move to go in there, rip it apart, and then we had no idea how to put it back together. Has anybody ever had a project like that where you took something apart and could not get it back together? Well, that's kind of what I'm going to be talking about this morning. Um, When we put those things together, it's slightly functional at best, but most of the time it's a disaster. Has anybody ever heard of the word deconstruction? Deconstruction, and if you don't, it's okay. I'm going to give you a lot of information and then we're going to get into the heart of this. Um, Deconstruction is actually a word that's derived from a French philosopher named Derrida. okay? And I'll briefly summarize what he meant. In the 60s, this dude named Jacques Derrida began to advocate for a postmodern philosophy of language and its relationship to our conceptions of meaning that he called deconstruction. It's an abstruse philosophy, and it's notoriously difficult to understand, and I'm not going to try to get into that today. He could hear, in fact, Dorita could not even explain it. He, he refused to summarize what de- deconstruction meant. He said, I don't even know what it meant. It's the whole philosophy of my life. So if that gives you any clue, and believe me, we are not going to get into postmodern philosophy this morning because I do not have the in- intellect to get, get there. But we are going to get into what deconstruction means for a Christian. Has anybody heard that word thrown around it by Christians these days? See, what what they mean by deconstruction, it's people that formerly were Christians and they walked away from the faith altogether. They deconstructed what they believed and found out there was nothing there and they decided to walk away totally. It's probably the most frequent way I hear the word deconstruction used and it's my least favorite because it conflates the words deconstruction with deconversion and those are not the same words. They're not the same words at all. Most likely people who re, who refer to their deconversion went through a deconstruction period and that's the critical thing there that deconstruction is a process deconversion is a result Does that make sense deconstruction is a process deconversion is a result But because, but Because they went through this, everybody's starting to think, well, I deconstructed, I walked away from my faith. And you're thinking, Casey, why do I even need to know what deconstruction means? Because I promise you, you've done it yourself. And if you haven't, you will. Here's what Merriam-Webster says deconstruction means. Breaking down or analyzing something to have a better understanding or discover its true significance. It does not mean demolition. See a lot of people that go through a deconstruction period. They walk away with a reinvigorated faith, even stronger than before. If you've read the book of Job, it's 40 chapters of him questioning God, but at the end of it, he walks away with a better, stronger faith than he had before. So that's possible. And why does it, why do I make it clear that it doesn't mean demolition? Because when we hear that word, that's what we automatically assume. They deconstructed. It means they totally demolished their faith. They took it apart. There was nothing there. And I think this is important. Has anybody um, noticed the onslaught of like pastors and leaders and people walking away from the church and not believing anymore? Anybody notice that sudden trend? And that's what I'm talking about when I say deconstruction. Has anybody seen the um, Hillsong documentary? It's okay. You can raise your hand. I watched it and I listened to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And both of them deal with these mega churches and their pastors and some of the struggles they had. And what I've seen, and two things troubled me and saddened me, is two things is that we started to attack and post the things about these pastors and other people on social media. Yes, they need to be held accountable. But yes, they need to be lifted up in prayer. They're people. And what else sad me when I watched this and listened to them interview people in the church, is that these people didn't just walk away from church. They walked away from faith altogether. That's sad. But why do you think they did that? Because ultimately, these people put their faith in a charismatic leader and not the creator of the universe. When I look, hey, Pastor Kelly's a great preacher, and he's my brother. But if you put your faith in that man and expect him not to mess up, you're in for a long ride. He is here to present God to you, not be God to you. That's good. I'm going to do it. It He's not here, so I'll do him. See, what they found when they pulled apart their their faith was something that wasn't built on solid ground at all. Not solid ground at all. And this all is important because, guys, you're going to encounter tragedies. You're going to encounter divorce. You're going to encounter death. You're going to encounter things in this life that make you want to pull your faith apart and look at it and say, do I even believe this? We're going to have, the series is called questions. You're going to have questions. Do I even believe this? Is there even a leg to stand on? God, do I really know you? This is important. When we pull this all apart, will we have something to put back together that's even stronger than it was before? Or will we walk away from our faith completely? Will it be like that Xbox I took apart? You don't want that. So let's dive into Matthew chapter (coughs) 7. Sorry, guys. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13. Jesus kind of systematically goes to and tells us how to build a faith and a relationship with him. Then whenever we do go through this process, there's something to rebuild. We don't demolish. We deconstruct and then reconstruct. So verse 13, don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life to God is vigorous and requires total attention. Be worried of false teachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off some in some area or the other. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. All right, what I want to address with this is not the diseased trees, not the people, but why do we put our faith in these people? And how can we build a better relationship? First thing is, no shortcuts. We cannot have a shortcut. See whenever I took this stuff apart, I totally neglected to even try to get a manual. I just wanted to do it the fast way, the easy way. There can be no shortcuts. When you're taking something apart, you got to do it with care and precision. I take pictures when I do stuff. If I'm taking something apart, even with wires, I take pictures. I want to be able to put it back the least the way I found it. So when we're putting something taking something apart, guys, we got to remember there can be no shortcuts if we want to rebuild something that was even better than before um a lot of y'all are aware of my story some of you have heard my story you might not have heard a lot of it (coughs) so i'm just going to share just a little bit i grew up in this church um i grew up and there was pews in this church and they were orange pews and they were ugly all right i was the youngest of four kids tracy you remember it good to see you um I was the youngest of four kids, and I was the youngest by a mile. My oldest brother is 16 years older than me. And like I said before, my parents swear I was not a mistake. I do not believe them. <laughs> but whether, whether or not I was or not, I grew up here, and what I did is I was on these pews all the time, and I watched people. I didn't so much doubt God. I started to doubt people when I was growing up. I would see their motivations. I would see... Hey, man, they're running the pews right here, but they're going out here and talking about somebody. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why? So I started doubting their motivation, their walk with God, and that kind of fueled my rebellion. Uh, you know, I was a pretty rebellious kid. I was wild. Um, I'm pretty sure my kids take after their mom and not me, but that's it. we'll argue about that later. But um, I grew up in the church. I was wild. I was wild. I did drugs. But I wasn't addicted per se, but then I um, ended up meeting my first wife, and then we split up on our honeymoon, no kidding, we went to Mexico and split up on our honeymoon, we were the only ones that spoke English, and she wasn't talking to me, (laughs) all right, this was not a fun trip, so I come back from Mexico, and I'd already been experimenting with pain pills, and then I just got lost in that addiction where I started to steal from people, I started to steal from church members, I started to do things I would normally never do, and I was totally trapped and lost. And then we got the news, my dad was sick, he had brain cancer. So, hearing that news, and they operated and got it out and said, hey, we'll check on you in a year, we'll see how it went, see how, how it's going. So I, during that time, I said, well, I'm going, Dad's going to be healed from this. When they do a checkup, I am turn, turning my life around. I, I orchestrated prayer trees. There was people praying for him all the time. I lived in Nashville at the time. I was praying. We were praying. He was going to have a breakthrough. I just knew it. Until I got a phone call where they said, everybody needs to come in. And they said, hey, boys, I only got about a month left to live. And I thought, man... That's not the way this is supposed to work out, God. This is not the way it was supposed to work out. You were supposed to heal my dad. You got people like Hugh Hefner that's running out around here until they're 80 years old, and my dad loves you. What's up? So I started to deconstruct and pull apart what I even believed in the first place, and I found out there was nothing there. And I found out I was trying to get shortcuts to God. The only reason that I even reached out to God is because my dad was in trouble. So he's seen the motivation. Hey, why are you even praying to me right now? Is it because you want a relationship? Is it because you want something for yourself? Not saying that God won't heal somebody, but he sees where your heart's at. He's seen where my heart was, and I just wanted a shortcut to get my dad healed. I wanted things the easy way my whole life. I wanted my Damascus Road experience. I wanted to just get knocked off on the floor and wake up and be better. That's not the way it worked for me. So when doing this, when rebuilding, you cannot have any shortcuts. Let's pick up in 21. Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. I can see it now at the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message, we bashed the demons, our super spiritual projects had everyone talking. We came to centuries. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. Or as you've probably heard it, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, here's the question I want to ask. Do you know him or does he know you? And you're like, oh, that don't even make sense. Are you trying to mess with my mind? No, it's an important question to ask. See, throughout my life, I read this verse, verse 23, as though Jesus were saying, depart from me because I never knew you or because you never knew me as if uh, you were never truly saved or whatever. But that's not what the verse says. Instead, Jesus says, I never knew you. See, it's not ultimately a question of whether we know him. As important as that question is, is does he know us? So has anybody ever read any C.S. Lewis? The Chronicles of Narnia, if you have, then you'll know what this is. If not, bear with me. (coughs) I'm reminded of a great scene. Let me get a drink of water, guys. Is that okay? Amen. Thank you, buddy. See, in, this, in the scene in The, the Don Treader, there's a scene between Edmund and Eustace. And hearing Edmund speak of his experience with Aslan, the unknown Eustace inquires, But who is Aslan? Do you know him? To which Edmund responds, Well, he knows me. He is the great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea, who saved me and saved Narnia. And if you don't know who Aslan is in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's the representation of Jesus Christ. So did Edmund know Aslan? Of course he did. But when asked whether he did, Edmund was thinking less about his own erudition and more about how Aslan had loved him, given himself up for him on the stone tablet, even when he was a traitor. Sounds a lot like me. You see, he knew Aslan, yes, but only because Aslan first knew him. That's it. You see you see, guys. When I deconstructed, when I went through my experience, I only had the concept down of what Jesus was. Grace is still a radical idea to me to this day, but I had never, it was never my experience at all. I didn't know what it was. I had the concept of what grace was. I couldn't say with certainty at all that he knew me. I had heard about him my whole life. So I went down to the altar a billion times growing up. Anybody grow up Pentecostal? It's okay, you can raise your hands. We're in the church that you can do that. Well, I used to go to the altar every time. I didn't care if they were praying for married couples. And I was 12 years old, I came down to the altar. I'm like, yeah, I, I need to come down there. Of course. Because I thought I needed to come down there. But here's the thing, I never changed. As many times as I went down there, why do you think that was? Because God's seen the condition of my heart whenever I came down here in the first place. He said, you don't want to change. Hey, and you know what this also this, also this means? I never knew you when we're talking in the Bible. This means an intimate relationship. Bible, he's saying, you're coming down here, but you don't want to be intimate with me. You are want to be selfish. You want to use me for something else. So the change is not going to happen. So I need to know you. I need to be intimate with you. There's a lot of people that know God and have heard about him, but they've never had an intimate relationship with him. That's important. Go to verse 24. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. Homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on a solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. Here's another question. What do we find when we pull this life apart? What will we find? Because inevitably, you're going to get there. You're going to get there to a place where you're saying, man, I don't know if this is worth it. I don't know. You're going to get there where you get the news that your husband or wife has got, is sick and they're not going to make it. And you're going to say, really, God? You're going to get the news that, that your kid's addicted. You're going to say, really, God, me? And you're going to start to question what foundation you even built this on. So what are we going to find when we pull it apart? See, I'll tell you what I found. It was a faith... That was built upon what my parents taught. Not that my parents were not good, pe- they were awesome people, but they were people. They were people. See, I had an empty experience because it wasn't my experience, it was my parents' experience. I can't live for somebody else's experience. Here's the deal. I can read every book, there is to know, every book there is on Africa. I can know everything there is about the continent. I can know all the animals there is. But until I take my foot and step off a plane and land in Africa, I have not experienced Africa. I've not done it. You can read the Bible. Hey, there's scholars that know the Bible better than I do. But does God speak to them through it? What will we find when we take this apart? See, no relationship can even can be built on someone else's experience. I can't get to know God through Ben's experience. It's not mine. See, I remember when Dad, uh, right before he succumbed to cancer, and I was back there around, I think it's Bob, where he was standing. And I remember Dad, he was being helped out, and a guy came up to him and said, Pastor Ken, I am so sorry for all this. And my dad said, it's okay. God's going to heal me. And I'm sitting here watching this interaction, and can I be completely honest? It pissed me off. Because I, I I seen the state of dad. He didn't even know who I was at this point. I, I, he didn't even know who I was. You're gonna, he's going to heal you? Do you not see? He's not going to heal you. You're fixing to die. So I was seriously, seriously mad at God. I was mad at my dad for believing this. See, but my dad believed until he died, because guess what? What I didn't know is my dad had an experience that had changed his life, that got him through all these years on earth, that let him raise four kids, that let him plant this church, that let him see a lot of people come to Jesus, and that's his experience. It wasn't my experience. I didn't have that. See, I've been sober for five years next Saturday. Well, <clears throat> thank you I always get caught off when people clap because you've been sober like that. you've finally been doing what you're supposed to have been doing good job way to go you were an idiot for a long time but now when we should clap we should clap for my wife and my mom and the people that really stood by my side for all of the time great job Great job! You're not stealing from anybody anymore. Good job. <laughs> Way to go! But I found God. When I found God, it was in a jail cell. I had totally abandoned God. I had uh, gone out. I, I, hey, guess what? I finally went to prison. After all this time, I'd went to jail in and out of praying in and out of jail, rehabs. And then I can remember going to prison and going to those gothic-looking gates and saying, Casey, you finally graduated. You're here. This is where you was want to go. I was thinking, I don't know if this was it. So I got in the prison. I did the things I thought I was supposed to do. I read. I turned into a prison scholar, some might say. I read. That's all I did was read, 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 read. I at least read one book a day almost. That's all I did was read. But like I said, you can read and you can know all the answers. You can know everything to say, but has God touched your life? So when I got out after the years I was in there, I was sober, but I wasn't changed. So my sobriety only lasted for a few months. Now, I got out uh, October 12th, uh, 2016. I got married October 14th, 2016. So two days after I got out, I got married. You're talking about a sensory overload. Like, all of a sudden, being locked up, and then you get married. So I was just like, you know, I was super happy. My wife had stayed with me for all these years. She came and seen me. But, man, I was having the people, hey, hugging me. And I was like, I don't, don't hug me, man. No, I don't know about this. So it's a sensory overload. So I was out. I was out about a few months, and I relapsed. Relapsed hard. And Tiffany is uh, going through. She's like, man, I've waited all this time for him. I've waited all this time, and it's going to be a pattern that's going to keep on showing up the rest of my life. When we found out we were pregnant with our daughter, Ken- Kenley. Well, she was pregnant. I don't know why guys always say we were pregnant. No, she was pregnant. With her daughter, Kenley. And I was so excited. But that excitement was completely or, or quickly replaced by fear. Fear that I was never going to change. Fear that I wasn't ever going to get it right. Fear that I was going to keep being the same guy that I've always been my whole life. And those kids were going to be worse off. So the enemy got in my mind and started saying, you're not going to change. You're not ever going to change. This is going to be you for the rest of your life. Those kids and your wife are better off without you. So I ran. I, did, I ran. I did The only thing I could do is run. And I thought, I am not brave enough to kill myself, but at least I can OD. So I got out there, I ran around, and I I promise you I did so many drugs, I tried everything I could. And then I ended up getting arrested and uh, violating my parole. And I got locked in there. Tiffany hated me at this point. She's pregnant at home. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I hate myself. And I was in there for about a week, and I got a chance to just get alone and get alone with God. And I said, man, you know, I I didn't have this audible experience. He didn't, the, the wall didn't come apart and he didn't come down and speak to me like that. But I had this experience where I felt peace like I'd never felt in my life. I said, God, look, here's the deal. I am completely desperate. I've never had a relationship with you in my life. I want to know what it's like. I've seen the other people's experience. I want to have a genuine experience, an authentic experience with you right now. And a lot of people call it jailhouse religion. I had a jailhouse relationship start right there. Because jailhouse religion takes place when you're trying to get, at, get yourself out of trouble. I could care less at that point. I just wanted something different. I wanted to know that I had a connection with the creator of the universe. So he started to speak to me. He he started to change my life. And I started to develop a relationship with him. See, I found something to build my life on. All those other times when I deconstructed and I pulled it apart, there was nothing there. But I finally had something that was solid. Let's start with verse 28 right there, Chloe. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. Quite a contrast to the religious teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. You know what that tells me? They had heard teaching. They just never listened. They had heard it before. That was like, I'd heard teaching but I never listened. So here's the la- here's one of the last things. Be teachable. you got to be teachable, guys. And all the mistakes I've made, and believe me, I've made a lot. <clears throat> one of the biggest mistakes I've made is not receiving sound counsel and not listening to somebody else and not being accountable to somebody else. That's one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made. Or to not obey God at all. See... I hate the word obedience as pertains to Casey, but I like the word obedience when I'm talking about my kids, right? We like it, but here's the deal. Most of the time when we want our kids to obey, it's because we're trying to impart some wisdom into them. We're trying to teach them a lesson. We're not just saying, don't do that just for the heck of not doing it. I don't know, some of you might, but most of the time, hey, don't touch that. It's hot. Don't have sex before marriage. I've been there. You know, you're trying to impart some wisdom to them. You're trying to teach them. See, I heard this quote by Chris Jamie in his book, *Philosophy*. It's a collection, a collection of aphorisms. It said, the unteachable man is sentenced to being taught only by experience. The tragedy is he reaches nothing further than his own pain. And you might be like my wife when I read her this. She's like, I don't even know what that means. But what he means by that is, hey, if you're not teachable, the only thing you're ever going to learn from is your own mistakes. But when I become teachable, I can start learning from Ben and what he's been through. I can start listening. Hey, I've been there. I've done that. Hey, let me tell you about how it it went for me. When I become teachable, I can learn from somebody else's experience. I can't be saved by their experience, but I can learn from it. We got to be teachable. See, the biggest part of being teachable is surrounding yourself with people that will hold you accountable. I've got, I've got like four or five people that hold me accountable now. That I tell almost anything to. That I can ask any question. I can ask the tough questions. Do y'all have that? Put those people in your life that you can ask the tough questions to? That won't admonish you for asking them? Say, and, and I'll tell this story real quick. Yeah, I'll tell it. Um, Tuesday, I went to the urologist. All right. To have my pre-op appointment for a vasectomy. All right. Yeah. This is the uncomfortable part he's probably talking about. All right. So I went in there and he gave me a lot of information, a lot of information of what he was going to do. And it was not very pleasant and didn't fill my life with joy. But he tells me in great detail of what they're going to do and how the process is going to work and how you're going to hurt and how you're going to feel once you stand up after three days and gravity works. So I left the doctor's appointment. I was like, hey, babe. Um, So I just left. She's like, how'd it go? And so I proceeded to tell her how it went. She's like, you're going to be so happy you did it. (laughs) You're just going to be so happy. I'm like, I don't know about you, but I, I, happy is not the word I would use to describe this. You're going to be so happy, though. You know you are. Uh, babe, I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know. Did, did you hear the part where they were going to do this? And Well, you don't have to do it. And how many are married when you know you hear that? They don't mean that. That's a passive-aggressive way of saying, you absolutely have to do that. You absolutely have to do that. So here's the deal. I was not questioning. I'm happy about the result. Matter of fact, Chloe, pull that picture up. (coughs) Look at these kids. Look at these kids. They are beautiful. Nick, come on. Dude, look at them kids, bro. Them kids are beautiful, homie. But man, hidden behind this beauty or tiny terrorist, okay? (laughs) So the result was never in doubt. I wanted to have the procedure done. I just wanted to question it, right? We need people in our life like that. You can pull the picture down. We need to be able to question the process. That's all I was doing. I was not saying, Tiff, you know. know, No, I just wanted to run through my mind. We need those people in our life. Nothing against Tiff. She's awesome. She just, no more of these just as bad as I do. (laughs) Not TV's kids. But we need to have people in our life. That we can process this stuff. Hey, I call Ben up all the time and I run through stuff that's going through my mind. He calls me up. I've got people here that I can ask these tough questions to. I've got people that I can say, hey, I need some counsel. Because believe me, guys, if you've not been through a tragedy, life's been good and you will. What are you going to find? when you decide to take your life apart, when you decide to pull your faith apart? Are you going to find something that you can rebuild? It matters who's in your corner. It matters if you're teachable. It matters that you don't take any shortcuts. And I told my story along with this today because it's really hard for me to give you the concept of what it means to deconstruct and pull apart your life if I can't give you a, 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 good, uh, a good lesson of how this works. So my, my life's my experience is the only thing I can teach you from because I've been there personally. Y'all can stand. See, you don't want a person like Chad that I had when I pulled apart that Xbox. You don't want that dude. You want people like this in your church community. See, Saul needed an Ananias so he could become Paul. See, Saul had his experience. He was riding, he was going to kill more Christians, I'm sure, and God smashed it, smacked him right off a horse. Hey, you can't tell me that Saul up until that point didn't think he had been doing God's work. He had religious fervor. He was a Pharisee. He truly believed that what he was doing was the right thing. Until he met God. And he had an experience that changed his life. But God didn't leave him there and just say, hey, you can handle this on your own. You had this great experience. No, he connected him with people that could mentor, teach, and disciple him. But first things first, you've got to have that experience for yourself. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, Hey, I came in struggling. I'm, I'm struggling right now. I'm pulling my life apart. I don't know how to put the pieces back together. I don't know if I even know who Jesus is the way you're talking about him. It talks about like you're talking about him like you've had a relationship. I have it changed my life. Here's the thing, is that we can talk apologetics, we can talk science, we can do all that stuff until the cows come home, but you can't argue with my experience. God changed my life five years ago, and he's still working on me. I was addicted for 20-something years, and that's the story. You can't argue with it. We can talk science, all this, creation of the universe, whatever you want to. I'm cool with that. But those who know me know God did something. There had to be something to do something because he's different. dude's different. So maybe that's you this morning. You're saying, hey, I want to encounter God. The God you're talking about. You can put your hands, or put your heads down.